Well, once again, today we're starting another two-part story in Scripture. Um, You get a lot of these in Genesis, where it's too long to really cover the passage in one Sunday. And so today, we're starting once again, looking at, in our sermon series, at the life of Isaac and Jacob. And in today's story, we hear a story of disobedience, dysfunctionality, deception, fear of being caught, lies, blasphemy, and all around a promised blessing. And so the, the, the really overarching theme of the next two Sundays is that despite God's people, despite this dysfunctionality, despite the threat to God's covenant promises because of the people in them, God is faithful. God is faithful and continues to move ahead His promised blessing of salvation through the line of Abraham. So, while Rebecca and Jacob are successful in obtaining a birthright today in our first passage, there are no winners. There are no winners. Lots of times when we read the Old Testament, we try to identify people, the good guys, and the bad guys. And today, everybody's a bad guy. Everybody's a bad guy in need of God's grace. So I ask you to open up in your bulletin or in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 26, verse 34. And we'll dig in to what's going on. Genesis chapter 26, verse 34. Where we read. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemeth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Seems a strange place to start. But if you look at Scripture, the end of verse or the end of this chapter, the end of chapter 26, actually sets the tone for the rest of the chapter. It seems random, but think about it. Esau here is taking Canaanite women to be his wives, and it makes the family miserable. If you remember back in chapter 24, Abraham sent Isaac the father, some 500 miles back to his own people in Padamaran. If you look at the map on the, in your bulletin, you can see how far that is, right? It's some 500 miles back to the family origin. And Isaac went back there, and of course God provided him with Rebekah as a wife so that, he could, so that he did not marry a Canaanite woman. Now what was Abraham's reasoning for that? Do you remember? This was last year's sermon series. Abraham's reasoning was one of spiritual protection. You see, he didn't want the wicked and pagan women of Canaan 
to draw Isaac away from the worship of the one true God. Hittites are Canaanite women. That's the connection here. And why does Esau marry two locals instead of honoring his father and his mother? He must have known his father and his mother's story. How could you overlook that kind of story, right? It's another one of these, I think it's three-part. It can be broken into three parts back in Genesis 24. Whether it's neglect of asking his parents' guidance or willful disobedience dishonoring his parents, Esau fails to honor his father and his mother and causes further division. So there's the first failure in this passage. Commenter and scholar Alan Ross makes the astute observation that in the following chapter, this family, the family of Isaac and Rebekah, is never all together. Physically, spiritually, or, in, or of mind. They're never, they're never all together. They're, in fact, the very opposite of what St. Paul talks about in our epistle passage today, being a unity of one mind and one spirit. They're existing in the same area, but they're not acting like a family. And that incredible conniving that goes on within this family brings about more dysfunction and scheming. So Isaac and Rebekah scheme against one another in the following chapter. Husband and wife set against one another, adding to the strife of their children. Remember how in the last two weeks we saw Isaac at his very worst, trusting in his own deception. He goes because of famine to the land of Gerar, and he passes off Rebekah, his sister, or his wife as his sister. Well, today, the tables are turned. Isaac, the deceiver, becomes the deceived. And he reaps the fruit that he's sown in his own family. Look at chapter 27, verses 1 through 4 this time. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. How then, now then, rather, take your weapons and your quiver and your bow and go to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. So Isaac is determined here to bless Esau his firstborn son. He also wants to eat his delicious food. Here the disobedient scheme with the disobedient. Right? Esau, who's disobeyed and dishonored his father, now goes to his father, who is also being disobedient to God. Isaac is at least 100 years old, we can figure by other passages here. And oftentimes in Scripture, Physical signs accompany spiritual realities. We see this all the time in the Gospels. There'll be, for example, the healing of the blind man, and then Jesus will talk about being the light of the world and showing forth spiritual realities. It goes on, too, in the Old Testament. And we see here that Isaac's blindness is not merely physical because of age, but also spiritual. How is it? Think about this. How is it? that for 40 years 
he and Rebecca have not talked about God's prophecy, about how the younger shall rule over the older, how Jacob shall rule over uh, how Jacob shall rule over Esau. Remember, this is coming right from Genesis chapter 25, verse 23. We can look back at that here. If we need the refresher, Isaac certainly did. Sorry, the fan turned my page here. Two nations. This is verse this is chapter 25. Two nations are in your womb, the oracle reads, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other and the other shall serve the younger. So from back when Jacob and Esau are in Rebekah's womb, this prophecy from God was told. And yet somehow Isaac's forgotten it, if we want to be charitable to him, or he's outright ignoring it. He's outright ignoring it, trying to bless Esau rather than Jacob. Either way, this is disobedience. This is a violation of another commandment, honoring God. And things just go from bad to worse. Turn back again to our passage. So this is Genesis chapter 27. And this time, look, at me, look with me at verses 5 and 6 and 10. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. And I'll jump down to verse 10. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. And so we see here that Jacob's mother, Isaac's wife, is trying to deceive her husband into thinking that Jacob is in fact Esau. Now, Jacob, of course, isn't blameless either. Jacob, whose name means both righteousness of God, blameless, and deceiver, is hesitant. Look at verses 11 and 12. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Now, notice his hesitancy. It's all about what? Is it about violating God's law? Is it about being, dece- being deceptive? Is he worried that he's going to be dishonoring to his father? No. What's he concerned about here? What's his reservation? Yeah. I might get caught. 
I might get caught. What if my father sees what I'm doing and perceives that I'm mocking? Well, no, Sherlock. He, he's gonna perce- he, he, he would perceive what you're actually doing, which is dishonoring him. Dishonoring him, right? And so we see here this willful deception encouraged by his mother going through into, into Jacob. He's concerned about getting caught. And Jacob goes ahead with this plan. He covers with goat skins and armed with the delicious food made by Rebekah. Jacob enters into the tent of his father. We continue reading at verse 18. So when he went in to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. So Jacob repeatedly dishonors, deceives his father, and then he lies outright to his face. I am Esau, he says. I am your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Three lies. Right there. Is this the greater son? that the oracle promises, this sneaky liar. But it actually gets worse. Look at verse 20. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, Because the Lord God granted me success. So here we spiral to the bottom. What goes on in that response. Oh, sure, it's a lie, but there's something far worse. Jacob is invoking the Lord God into his lie. This, friends, is blasphemy. This is blasphemy. Because Jacob is saying, by the Lord, it's by the Lord that he is making this deception. Scholar Alan Ross says, the first was enough to deceive, but the second was blasphemy. And after questioning him again, and even noting that this was not Esau's voice, right? Isaac might be blind, but he's not deaf. He's convinced and he blesses Jacob. Why? Why did he not bring someone else into the tent? That is Isaac. Why didn't Isaac have someone else come in and verify what was going on? Well, here the text shows that In his old age, Isaac is spiritually blind and he's been dulled by his appetites. Just as Esau exchanged his birthright for a bowl of stew, so the father, Isaac, forgoes the truth for a bowl of stew and blesses Jacob. We see sin begetting sin, begetting sin here. Derek Kidner, another scholar and observer, says this, he says that Isaac's palate had long since governed his heart. His palate had long since governed his heart. Essentially that he was thinking with his stomach. Now you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal with this? He does get the blessing. Why does it matter after all that Esau, after all, We read later in Genesis that Esau does pretty well himself despite not receiving the blessing. Well, blessings and curses are really important in the Bible and they're also really important for Christians. Calling God's favor upon one's children 
was one of the patriarch's chief jobs, and he offers sacrifices for his family's sins. That's the job of the patriarch in the Old Testament before the, the system, the sacrifice system. And so the patriarch's sins, as opposed to his obedience, his disobedience, have real effects on his family. And the same is actually true today. While fathers in our own homes are not necessarily those that were not the priests of our house in the way, in the way that the patriarchs were, our sins affect our families. And that goes for mothers as well. That if we're not careful, we pass patterns of sin along to our families. And on the other side, blessings are really important too. You see, blessings in the Old Testament and for Christians are not just nice thoughts or even brief prayers, but they're an invocation of God. Jay McGowan says this, he says, pronouncements of blessing and cursing in the Pentateuch, that is part of Genesis, is part of the Pentateuch, were powerful and efficacious. Such pronouncements were actions rather than simple speeches. They had the power to change situations and to alter circumstances. The effects of blessing included fertility, prosperity, authority, and security. And as you look at today's passage, I invite you to look at the end of it. We see this, right? Look at the part that's in verse on page 4 in the order of service. It's uh, verse starts with verse 27. So he came near, that is Isaac, to Jacob and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him, saying, See the smell of my son is the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And so here we see fertility of the field and prosperity being passed along to Jacob in verse 28, authority over family and nations in verse 29, and God's divine protection at the end of verse 29. If we look even closer, looking through our Christological eyes at what Messiah promises are here, we see that this is a part of a messianic blessing too, that the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth would be with him. Well, what is that? If we turn back in our minds and put our Old Testament hats on, we realize that's actually a reference back to Genesis, to the, to the beginning of Genesis, to the Garden of Eden, where the dew of the Lord came upon the field and, and things just flourished without great toil. And through Jacob's offspring, Jesus Christ, of course, blesses all nations, but all nations also will bow down to him one day. And finally, cursed are those who disdain Jacob. Cursed are those who curse Jacob. Well, cursed are those who despise Christ. Because in that cursing, they bring their own damnation upon themselves. The worst curse of all. 
right? And so we see here the Messiah in this blessing as well. But blessed are those who bless Him. Blessed are those who embrace Him. That's the reason that I chose the Gospel passage for today, pointing forth to first John the Baptist and then Christ. Because we see this fulfilled, this blessing that goes from Isaac, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, ultimately coming forth in Jesus Christ. The immediate context here is a prophecy, right? But there's so much more than the immediate prophecy. And the great thing here is despite the sinfulness, the spiral down, the deception, all the dysfunction in this family, God brings forth Jesus from these flawed vessels. That's the promise. That's the grace. And that's the hope, indeed, for all of us, in addition to the patriarchs. So what else are we to make of this great drama? At this point, we see Esau's dishonored and caused bitterness to his father by marrying a Canaanite, Canaanite woman, rather. That Rebekah has mixed her favoritism of Jacob with her piety and tried to help God along, right, in bringing forth the prophecy. And Isaac has let his faithless, faithfulness lapse, rather, due to his stomach and his own favoritism of Jacob. Jacob, for his part, deceives and blasphemes the Lord, but receives the birthright blessing. Well, this passage is rich with lessons, as I've already alluded to, for the Christian today. But perhaps the first one continues with one we've been talking about for the last few weeks. That in the family of Isaac, we see a lesson in how not to act with your family. How not to act with your family. Don't be like these people, friends. Isaac's family is never together, as I've observed, in faith, in goals, or even in person and eating. This is poor leadership on Isaac's part, and it's poor parenting by both Isaac and Rebekah. It's an entire passage that shows how scheming and ambition can destroy a family, how divergent goals can destroy a family. All members of the family act in their own interest. Again, it's antithetical to how St. Paul instructs Christians to run their families and their relationships with other people. Just look at that with me very quickly. It's a short, very short epistle lesson on page 4 from Philippians chapter 2. What does St. Paul say? He says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and in one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And St. Paul here is writing to the Philippian church, but of course churches are made up of families and individuals, right? We're knit together in these relationships by God. All members of Isaac's family act sinfully and contrary to how they should be acting. And we read the Ten Commandments at the beginning of this service. Can you count the breaches of the Ten Commandments in this passage? It's actually kind of hard. 
Because there's so many. How many times are the Ten Commandments breached here? Don't be like them in that. Number two, God is sovereign in our lives. And He does not need our help. Let me say that again. Because I think this is really hard. God is sovereign in our lives. And He does not need your or my help. Do you think for one minute that if Jacob and Rebekah had not deceived and dishonored Isaac, that God wouldn't have brought about the oracle? Do you think for one minute that God was incapable of doing that? We don't know how it would have happened, right? Scripture's written. The past is the past. But what if they had acted honorably? I'm sure there would have been some better way that Esau would have served Jacob. As it is, we see these schemes, these lies, and this blasphemy, this trying to help God's plan along, which again should remind us of Abraham and Sarah trying to help God's plan along, right? We see the bitter fruit of this, and we're going to see it, permanent, we're going to see it more on display next week as we continue in the passage But ultimately, this brings not just a division of mind and spirit to this family, but they go their separate ways. Rebecca, the mother, never sees Jacob again for the rest of her life because Esau gets so angry that he threatens to kill him and they have to send Jacob away. Think about that pain. Think about that bitterness that comes out of this sin. And there's others too, of course. There's the strife that goes on between Jacob and Esau, which is not repaired for years. Finally, God disciplines and restores those that He loves. While there's permanent damage and pain for this family, again, as we're going to see in part two next week, God doesn't leave them or forsake them. And again, this is the hope for us as we will see, this great pain and separation does follow. There are consequences to sin. But Jacob, and Jacob does not realize that with his stolen blessing, stolen blessing will come a great deal of suffering for him personally too and refining for him. He goes to a foreign land and he ends up working for his two wives and trying to be cheated. But that's for another day. And nevertheless, God's end for Jacob is good. God does continue to bring him along and uses these hardships that come from these sins for good. For out of Jacob, as I've said, comes the twelve tribes of Israel. And out of the twelve tribes of Israel comes King David. And out of King David comes Jesus Christ. As Christians, we should take heart in that and take all three of these lessons to heart. Next week, we're going to see the fallout from what happened today. But more importantly, we're going to see how God starts to turn around this situation and bring it to blessing. So stay tuned. The story is not over. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.